Good morning. We are coming here today to celebrate a historical fact, but one that was laid out centuries before this day. Going way back to Abraham. Abraham was told by God when he was childless in an older gentleman that he would not only have a child, but would have descendants by so many that if you could count the stars in the sky, you could determine how many descendants. Well, he had the child of promise, Isaac. And God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. So he took Isaac and they took wood and they went up on a particular hill to do a burnt offering. And as they were climbing the hill, Isaac asked his father, well, I see the wood, I see all that's necessary for the offering, but I do not see the lamb. And Abraham responded to Isaac and said, God himself will heal, will provide for the lamb. And so later in the story, when Isaac is placed on the, um, the altar, Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac. He doesn't think that God is going to stop him. His faith is such that even though Isaac is the child of promise, that God is able to raise him from the dead. But before he places him on it, he goes, God himself will provide the lamb. And we are told after that, that there is a ram, not a lamb, caught in a thicket, and they use that conduct their sacrifice. Well, John, many centuries before, as the forerunner to the Messiah, having baptized Jesus and seeing Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29, it says this, The next day he, being John, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So this is the one who had been predicted to not only free Israel from its oppressor, but to eliminate sin and for, provide for forgiveness. And it's that Lamb of God that Isaac had been told by his father Abraham that God would provide. And so Jesus is that Lamb of God who takes away not just the sins of Israel, but the sins of Samaria and of Syria and of Persia, and of the United States, and throughout the whole world. Jesus is, is that lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus came, and he ministered, and he was placed on a cross and crucified. And we remembered that in our darkness service, celebrating that passion time when he suffered and died, so that as the Passover lamb, that he took away the sins. There was a time when his disciples were discouraged because all of their dreams and all their expectations had been dashed because their rabbi, their teacher, the one that they believed to be the king who was the king, was dead. But they hadn't even had enough time to prepare for his 
funeral for his proper, proper presentation of his body. And so the women, after the three Sabbaths, the Sabbath of Passover, the Sabbath of unleavened bread, and the Saturday Sabbath, were coming to the tomb to provide that care for his body that had not been able to be performed because of the oncoming of the three Sabbaths. But another interesting thing was happening. As the sun was setting on that Sunday day, the priest cut a stalk of wheat and barley. And they, as the sun would go down, they would wave that wheat and that barley as a first fruit offering, acknowledging that God had provided the first fruits at that time, but also as a way of promising and expecting that the future harvest would be brought into the storehouse. And so as the women came, it said, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, that's being the women, bringing spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and also other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. So the first people who are aware that Jesus had raised from the dead were some women who had gone to prepare his body. Now, some of the reasons why we know that we can be assured of these accounts is that if they were making this up, you know that if you were writing the story, you would want to make yourself the hero. And so you would say, well, I always believed Jesus that he was going to do what he said, and I knew he was going to raise from the dead. His apostles thought it was nonsense. The women were not even legally allowed to testify in a court, and yet they're the ones who were the first ones who saw the race, the absence of the body, and they were told that Jesus was risen. And why were they looking for the living one among the dead? And so these things give us more assurance of what had happened. Also, if many times when there are myths that are prepared, they are done centuries later and in different locations. It had been one thing if, all of a sudden in Rome, there was this belief that Jesus had raised from the dead. No, no. 
It happened the third day after his crucifixion and burial. There was no time passage before it could be made up. And it was made up and witnessed by people who were there in Jerusalem, not in Rome or some other place. And so these difficult and, and distinct testimonies tell us that we can rely on the historical resurrection of Jesus. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the believability and the testimony of those who saw the resurrected Jesus. And so it, it, he writes to the Corinth church, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. For I deliver to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So Paul's first demonstration of witnesses is the scripture that he says that Jesus died according to the scriptures was buried and even according to the scriptures was buried and rose again according to the scriptures and so we know that this Jesus is the Messiah because what he did in his death burial and resurrection was in conformity with what had happened and what was predicted of the Messiah so for instance there is another antichrist who will someday be wounded with a head wound and raised. And that prediction will be according to the scriptures, but he won't be Christ. He will be the antichrist. And so the first testimony of the resurrection and the validity of it is that the scriptures testify to it. But it goes on and says, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the 12. And so Paul says, he appeared to that one who denied Jesus three times, and he also appeared to his disciples. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. By falling asleep, Paul doesn't mean that they're, they're taking a nap. He's saying that their bodies at rest, that they have what we call died, but they are present with Jesus. And so he said, there is a number of people who saw Jesus alive and they were in Jerusalem at the time. So there is this opportunity that it's a well-known fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. We have the empty tomb. We have the scriptures. We have the eyewitnesses of the women and of the apostles and 500 more in addition to that. But then he doesn't stop there. He says, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And so he goes, there's these continuing appearances of resurrection. As a matter of fact, Jesus walked on the earth after his resurrection for a period of about 40 days. And so this wasn't a, oh, he appeared in a, in a quick meeting or two and then left. He continued having contact with his disciples and these 500 and others for a period of, 500 uh, for 40 days. And he also appeared to James, his brother, who uh, once thought he was crazy and now became a believer and a substantial uh, pillar of the church. 
He also appeared, and Paul doesn't mention this, he just says he appeared to the well, but he appeared to Thomas, who said he would not believe unless he saw the nail imprints on the hands and the feet and the pierced side, because he saw his Lord dead, and he would not believe. And Jesus presented to him his hands and his feet and his side. And Thomas immediately said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus' response to him was, blessed are you because you've seen and believed. But how much more blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And those of us who know that Jesus is raised from the dead and believe, how blessed are we because we didn't have to see the hands and the feet and the side. We accepted the testimony of the facts. But that's not the last of the testimony. Then it says, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But the grace, by, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all, the, all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Paul says, I just gave you a list of the apostles. The scriptures give us a list of the women and the apostles. The, Paul tells us about the 500. And then he says, years later, I had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. And I believe and I am preaching him. And he's saying, I'm not laboring in vain because I am preaching a resurrected so this is a day of celebration because while our sins had been forgiven because of the Lamb of God's sacrifice, we would not be sure that it, that in fact took place unless Jesus rose from the dead because then we know that the offering was pleasing to God. Furthermore, there is this sense that we know of the resurrection. And Paul will later talk about in this very same chapter that the crux of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus. And he says that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We are still in our sins. We are still helpless people. And so if Jesus rose from the dead, then our faith is confirmed, and it's not in vain. But if he didn't, then we're wasting all of this time celebrating. We're wasting all of this time about being what we call Christians and attending church because we are just where we were before this happened. But the scriptures testify that he rose from the dead. The women testify that he rose from the dead. The apostles testified that he rose from the dead. His brother testified he rose from the dead. The 500 testified he rose from the dead. The spirit testifies he rose from the dead. The empty tomb testifies he rose from the dead. Paul testifies he rose from the dead. And I testify that he rose from the dead. And as Paul said, that if Jesus didn't 
rise from the dead, then he, then by way of me, are liars. That's a serious charge when you mislead what God is doing. And so our faith is founded on a historical fact. Our faith is founded on the fact that we don't run away from, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. It is the central crux of what we believe, that he rose from the dead. But he rose from the dead, and we talk about his return, and someday he will return. But there are things that are happening in heaven. And in Revelation chapter 7, starting with verse 9, it says this. And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Remember when John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And here we see in heaven the sins having been taken away from the world because there is a great multitude that no one can count from every nation and tribes and people and different tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they are clothed in white robes. They are righteous. They are pure because of the blood of the Lamb. Them, and they are doing what we celebrated just a week ago on Palm Sunday, that they're holding palm branches in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So they're praising God the Father and they're praising God the Son, the Lamb of God. And they are praising him, if you will. Hosanna, thank you for our salvation. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So when the people of God are worshiping and praising him. The angels of God are joining in and yelling and crying out, saying blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and all these things, giving praise and honor to the Lamb and to our God. What a wonderful scene it must be in heaven to see that, and someday the believers will. Then one of the elders answered and saying to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? So the elder asked John a question as to this vision. He's saying, who are these people who are from every tribe and nation and tongue? Who are they? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. Basically, John is saying, you're asking me a question you already know, and I'm not sure of the answer. So you tell me who they are. Um, I'm not going to guess but you already know you're not asking me to find information. You're asking me if I understand the information. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Again, the reason that they are in heaven is because of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away 
the sins of the world. For this reason, reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. So these who have suffered for his namesake, they are the ones who are going to have immediate access to the Lord in his temple. And that is he who is going to, in essence, spread his tabernacle, his tent, his covering over them. So when you hear about Paul writing in other letters about sharing in the sufferings of Christ and the fellowship that that brings, not only does it bring fellowship in the sense of we are sharing what Jesus had shared in some small part, we have some understanding of what is happening. We also share in that victory and in that closeness that we are there. Because when Jesus said, blessed are they who are persecuted for my name's sake, look at the blessing that they are before the Lamb of God and before the temple and his tabernacle is covering them. And more than that, and they will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. So all of the problems of life that had been beset us before are no longer problems in this eternal life. There are those who claim that because of nanotechnology that we can perhaps live to be immortal. I don't believe that that's possible, but we'll set that aside. But even if it were, Here's the situation. You still have to deal with the environment. It gets hot, it's cold, it's raining, it's whatever. There are oftentimes aches and pains. There are disappointments. There are, even in a immortal situation, there are still accidents where people will be killed and all these things happen and there will still be disappointments with friends and families and others, and there will be tears and all of those type of things. Jesus isn't offering an eternal life of continuation of this life. He's offering a, an eternal life of one, of being in his presence without the problems of this life. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. The lamb of God He's not only the sacrifice, but he's the leader. He's the shepherd. He's the one who will lead them. He's the one who will protect them. He's the one who will find them the green pastures and the living waters and the still waters. All of these things that the Psalms 23 talks about, the Lord is my shepherd. He continues to be our shepherd even in eternity. And he will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. God personally will see to it that all the suffering that we have endured for him, he will ameliorate by wiping our tears, by dwelling in his house, by having his covering over us, and by Jesus leading us and caring for us, and making sure that 
eternal life to the life we're looking forward to. So yes, our faith is hinged upon his resurrection. And yes, we look for the day, as he had told his disciples, that he'll return. But we also look for the day that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever because the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world took away my sin, took away the sins of those who believe. And we will dwell in his house and he will be our shepherd, the great shepherd, the one and the only. If you are a believer, this is a day of great rejoicing. For our sin and our shames have been forgiven and we're free and have been reconciled to God and are righteous and are going to be made sanctified and holy. But we will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. It's not just a here and now faith. It is a faith that will sustain us in the present and gives us a bright future tomorrow. But to those who don't want anything to do with God, I find that sad, but if you will, why would you want to be in heaven? You don't want to be in his presence. And so often, so many people are so proud of the fact that they don't need God and they don't believe that there is a God. And the greatest penalty and punishment in hell, I believe, is not the fire, not the smoke, not the worm, not the torment. The absence of the presence of God. And in heaven, it's not the angels, not the streets of gold, not the temple, it's the presence of God and the presence of the Lamb of God, where we will be able to sing his praises for an eternity because we are there in white robes because of his blood, because of his sacrifice. And we'll be able to stand and sing and we'll be able to bow and worship and give him praise because he is worthy of that and so much more.